Chapter Nine of Flower of the North. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Flower of the North by James Oliver Curwood. Chapter Nine. Her voice broke the spell that had held him for a moment. I am glad to see you, he cried quickly, seizing both her hands. Only I haven't quite yet awakened from my dream. It seems too wonderful, almost unreal. Are you the old Eileen who used to shudder when I told you of a bit of jungle and wild beasts, and who laughed at me because I loved to sleep out of doors and tramp mountains instead of decently behaving myself at home? I demand an explanation. It must be a wonderful change. There has been a change, she interrupted him. "'Sit down, Philip, there.' She nestled herself on a stool close to his feet and looked up at him, her hands clasped under her chin, radiantly lovely. "'You told me once that girls like me simply fluttered over the top of life like butterflies, that we couldn't understand life or live it, until somewhere, at some time, we came into touch with nature. Do you remember? I was consumed with rage then.' at your frankness, at what I considered your impertinence. I couldn't get what you said out of my mind, and I'm trying it. "'And you like it?' he put the question almost eagerly. "'Yes.' She was looking at him steadily, her beautiful gray eyes meeting his own in a silence that stirred him deeply. He had never seen her more beautiful. Was it the firelight on her face?' the crimson leaping of the flames that gave her skin a richer hue? Was it the mingling of fire and shadow that darkened her cheeks? An impulse made him utter the words which passed through his mind. "'You have already tried it,' he said. "'I can see the effects of it on your face. It would take weeks in the forest to do that.' The gray eyes faltered. The flush deepened. "'Yes, I have tried it. I spent a half of the summer at our cottage on the lake. "'But it is not tan,' he persisted, thrilled for a moment by the discoveries he was making. "'It is the wind. It is the open. It is the smoke of campfires. It is the elixir of balsam and cedar and pine. That is what I see in your face, unless it is the fire.' "'It is the fire, partly,' she said and the rest is the wind and the open of the seas we have come across, and the sting of icebergs. Ugh, my face feels like nettles. She rubbed her cheeks with her two hands, and then held up one hand to Philip. Look, she said, it's as rough as sandpaper. Isn't that a change? I didn't even wear gloves on the ship. I'm an enthusiast. I'm going down there with you, and I'm going to fight. "'Now have you got anything to say against me, Mr. Philip?' There was a lightness in her words, and yet not in her voice. In her manner was an uneasiness, mingled with an almost childish eagerness for him to answer, which Philip could not understand. He fancied that once or twice he had caught the faintest sign of a break in her voice. "'You really mean to hazard this adventure?' he cried softly in his astonishment. "'You, whom wild horses couldn't drag into the wilderness, as you once told me?' 
"'Yes,' she affirmed, drawing her stool back out of the increasing heat of the fire. Her face was almost entirely in shadow now, and she did not look at Philip. "'I am beginning to—to to love adventure,' she went on, in an even voice. "'It was an adventure coming up, and when we landed down there something curious happened. Did you see a girl who thought that she knew me?' She stopped, and a sudden flash of the fire lit up her eyes, fixed on him intently from between her shielding hands. "'I saw her run out and speak to you,' said Philip, his heart beating at double quick. He leaned over so that he was looking squarely into Miss Brokaw's face. "'Did you know her?' she asked. "'I have seen her only twice, once before she spoke to you.' "'If I meet her again, I shall apologize,' said Eileen. "'It was her mistake, and she startled me. "'When she ran out to me like that and held out her hands, "'I I thought of beggars.' "'Beggars!' almost shouted Philip. "'A beggar!' he caught himself with a laugh, "'and to cover his sudden emotion "'turned to lay a fresh piece of birch on the fire. "'We don't have beggars up here.' The door opened behind them, and Brokaw entered. Philip's face was red when he greeted him. For half an hour after that he cursed himself for not being as clever as Gregson. He knew that there was a change in Eileen Brokaw, a change which nature had not worked alone, as she wished him to believe. Then, and at supper, he tried to fathom her. At times he detected the metallic ring of what was unreal and make-believe in what she said. At other times she seemed stirred by emotions which added immeasurably to the sweetness and truthfulness of her voice. She was nervous. He found her eyes frequently seeking her father's face, and more than once they were filled with a mysterious questioning, as if within Brokaw's brain there lurked hidden things which were new to her and which she was struggling to understand. She no longer held the old fascination for Philip, and yet he conceded that she was more beautiful than ever. Until tonight he had never seen the shadow of sadness in her eyes. He had never seen them darken as they darkened now, when she listened with almost feverish interest to the words which passed between himself and Brokaw. He was certain that it was not a whim that had brought her into the North. It was impossible for him to believe that he had piqued at her vanity until she had leaped into action, as she had suggested to him while they were sitting before the fire. Could it be that she had accompanied her father because he, Philip Whitmore, was in the North? The thought drew a slow flush into his face, and his uneasiness increased when he knew that she was looking at him. He was glad when it came time for cigars, and Eileen excused herself. He opened the door for her, and told her that he probably would not see her again until morning, as he had an important engagement for the evening. She gave him her hand, and for a moment he felt the clinging of her fingers about his own. "'Good night,' she whispered. "'Good night.' She drew her hand half away, and then, suddenly, raised her eyes straight to his own. They were calm, quiet, beautiful, 
and yet there came a quick little catch in her throat as she leaned so close to him that she touched his breast and said, "'It will be best, best for everything, everybody, if you can influence father to stay at Fort Churchill.' She did not wait for him to reply, but hurried toward her room. For a moment Philip stared after her in amazement. Then he took a step as if to follow her, to call her back. The impulse left him as quickly as it came, and he rejoined Brokaw and the factor. He looked at his watch. It was seven o'clock. At half-past seven, he shook hands with the two men, lighted a fresh cigar, and passed out into the night. It was early for his meeting with Pierre and Jeanne, but he went down to the shore and walked slowly in the direction of the cliff. He was still an hour early when he arrived at the great rock, and sat down with his face turned to the sea. It was a white, radiant night such as he had seen in the tropics. Only here, in the north, his vision reached to greater distances. Churchill lay lifeless in its pool of light. The ship hung like a black silhouette in the distance, with a cloud of jet-black smoke rising straight up from its funnels and spreading out high up against the sky, a huge ebon monster that cast its shadows for a half a mile over the bay. The shadow held Philip's eyes. Now it was like a gigantic face, now like a monster beast. Now it reached out in the form of a great threatening hand, as though somewhere in the mystery of the North it sought a spirit victim as potent as itself. Then the spell of it was broken. From the end of the shadow, which reached almost to the base of the cliff in which Philip sat, there came a sound. It was a clear, metallic sound that left the vibration of steel in the air, and Philip leaned over the edge of the rock. Below him the shadow was broken into a pool of rippling starlight. He heard the faint dip of paddles, and suddenly a canoe shot from the shadow out into the clear light of the moon and stars. It was a large canoe. In it he could make out four figures. Three of them were paddling. The fourth sat motionless in the bow. They passed under him swiftly, guiding their canoe so that it was soon hidden in the shelter of the cliff. By the faint reflections cast by the disturbed water, Philip saw that the occupants of the canoe had made an effort to conceal themselves by following the course of the dense shadow. Only the chance sound had led him to observe them. Under ordinary circumstances, the passing of a strange canoe at night would have had no significance for him. But at the present time it troubled him. The manner of its approach through the shadow, the strange quiet of its occupants, the stealth with which they had shot the canoe under the cliff were all unusual. Could the incident have anything to do with Jeanne and Pierre? He waited until he heard the tiny bell in his watch tinkle the half-hour, and then he set out slowly over the moonlit rocks to the north. Jeanne and Pierre would surely come from that direction. It was impossible to miss them. He walked without sound in his moccasins, keeping close to the edge of the cliff so that he could look out over the bay. Two or three hundred yards beyond the big rock, the sea-wall swung in sharply, 
disclosing the open water like a still, silvery sheet, for a mile or more. Philip scanned it for the canoe, but as far as he could see there was not a shadow. For a quarter of a mile he walked over the rocks, then returned. It was nine o'clock. The moment had arrived for the appearance of Jeanne and Pierre. He resumed his patrol of the cliff, and with each moment his nervousness increased. What if Jeanne failed him? What if she did not come to the rock? The mere thought made his heart sink with a sudden painful throb. Until now the fear that Jeanne might disappoint him, that she might not keep the tryst, had not entered his head. His faith in this girl, whom he had seen but twice, was supreme. A second and a third time he patrolled the quarter-mile of cliff. Again his watch tinkled the half-hour, and he knew that the last minutes of the appointed time had come. The third and last time he went beyond the quarter-mile limit, searching in the white distances beyond. A low wind was rising from the bay. It rustled in the spruce and balsam tops of the forest that reached up to the barren whiteness of the rock plateau on which he stood. Under him he heard, growing more and more distinct, the moaning wash of the swelling tide. A moment of despair possessed him, and he felt that he had lost. Suddenly the wind brought to him a different sound, a shout far down the cliff, a second cry, and then the scream of a woman, deadened by the wash of the sea and the increasing sweep of the wind among the trees. He stood for a moment powerless, listening. The wind lulled, and the woman's cry now came to him again, a voice that was filled with terror rising in a wild appeal for help. With an answering shout he ran like a swift-footed animal along the cliff. It was Jeanne who was calling. Who else but Jeanne would be out there in the gray night? Jeanne and Pierre. He listened as he ran, but there came no other sound. At last he stopped and drew in a great breath to send out a shout that would reach their ears. Above the fierce beating of his heart, the throbbing intake of his breath, he heard sounds which were not of the wind or the sea. He ran on, and suddenly the cliff dropped from under his feet, and he found himself on the edge of a great rift in the wall of rock, looking across upon a strange scene. In the brilliant moonlight, with his back against a rock, stood Pierre, his glistening rapier in his hand, his thin, lithe body bent for the attack of three men who faced him. It was but a moment's tableau. The men rushed in. Muffled cries, blows, a single clash of steel, and Pierre's voice rose above the sound of conflict. "'For the love of God, give me help, monsieur!' He had seen Philip rush up to the edge of the break in the cliff, and as he fought, he cried out again, "'Shoot, monsieur! In a moment it'll be too late!' Philip had drawn his heavy revolver. He watched for an opportunity. The men were fighting now so that Pierre had been forced between his assailants and the breach in the wall. There was no chance to fire without hitting him. "'Run, Pierre!' shouted Philip. "'Run!' 
he fired once over the heads of the fighters, and as Pierre suddenly darted to one side in obedience to his command, there came for the first time a shot from the other side. The bullet whistled close to his ears. A second shot, and Pierre fell down like one dead among the rocks. Again Philip fired, a third and a fourth time, and one of the three who were disappearing in the white gloom stumbled over a rock and fell as Pierre had fallen. His companion stopped, picked him up, and staggered on with him. Philip's last shot missed, and before he could reload, they were lost among the upheaved masses of the cliff. "'Pierre!' he called. "'Ho! Pierre Couchet!' There was no answer from the other side. He ran along the edge of the break, and in the direction of the forest he found a place where he could descend. In his haste he fell. His hands were scratched. Blood flowed from a cut in his forehead when he dragged himself up to the face of the cliff again. He tried to shout when he saw a figure drag itself up among the rocks, but his almost superhuman exertions had left him voiceless. His wind whistled from between his parted lips when he came to Pierre. Pierre was supporting himself against a rock. His face was streaming with blood. In his hand he held what remained of the rapier, which had broken off close to the hilt. His eyes were blazing like a madman's, and his face was twisted with an agony that sent a thrill of horror through Philip. "'My hurt is nothing, nothing, monsieur,' he gasped, understanding the look in Philip's face. "'It is Jeanne. They have gone, gone with Jeanne.' The rapier slipped from his hand, and he slid weakly down against the rock. Philip dropped upon his knees, and with his handkerchief began wiping the blood from the half-breed's face. For a few moments Pierre's head hung limp against his shoulder. "'What is it, Pierre?' he urged. "'Tell me, quick! They have gone with Jeanne?' Pierre's body grew rigid. With one great effort he seemed to marshal all of his strength and straightened himself. "'Listen, monsieur,' he said, speaking calmly. They set upon us as we were going to meet you at the rock. There were four. One of them is dead, back there. The others, with Jeanne, have gone in the canoe. It is death, worse than death, for her. His body writhed. In a passion he strove to rise to his feet. Then with a groan he sank back, and for a moment Philip thought he was dying. "'I will go, Pierre,' he cried. "'I will bring her back. I swear it!' Pierre's hand detained him as he went to rise. "'You swear?' "'Yes.' "'At the next break there is a canoe. They have gone for the Churchill.' Pierre's voice was growing weaker. In a spasm of sudden fear at the dizziness which was turning the night black for him, he clutched at Philip's arm. "'If you save her, monsieur, do not bring her back,' he whispered hoarsely. "'Take her to Fort God. Lose not an hour, not a minute. Trust no one. Hide yourselves. Fight. Kill. But take her to Fort God. You will do this, monsieur, you promise?' 
He fell back limp. Philip lowered him gently, holding his head so that he could look into the staring eyes that were still open and understanding. "'I will go, Pierre,' he said. "'I will take her to Fort of God. And you—' A shadow was creeping over Pierre's eyes. He was still fighting to understand, fighting to hold for another breath or two the consciousness that was fast slipping from him. "'Listen!' cried Philip, striving to rouse him. "'You will not die. The bullet grazed your head, and the wound has already stopped bleeding. Tomorrow you must go to Churchill and hunt up a man named Gregson, the man I was with when you and Jeanne came to see the ship. Tell him that an important thing has happened, and that he must tell the others I have gone to the camps. He will understand. Tell him. Tell him.' He struggled to find some final word for Gregson. Pierre still looked at him, his eyes half-closed now. Philip bent close down. "'Tell him,' he said, "'that I am on the trail of Lord Fitzhugh.' Scarcely had he uttered the name when Pierre's closing eyes shot open. A groaning cry burst from his lips and as if that name had aroused the last spark of life and strength within him into action, he wrenched himself from Philip's arms, striving to speak. A trickle of fresh blood ran over his face. Incoherent sounds rattled in his throat, and then, overcome by his effort, he dropped back unconscious. Philip wound his handkerchief about the wounded man's head and straightened out his limbs. Then he rose to his feet and reloaded his revolver. His hands were steady now. His brain was clear. The enervating thrill of excitement had gone from his body. Only his heart beat like a racing engine. He turned and ran in the direction which Pierre's assailants had taken, his head lowered, his revolver held in front of him on a level with his breast. He had not gone a hundred yards when something stopped him. In his path, with its face turned straight up to the moonlit sky, lay the body of a man. For an instant Philip bent over it. The broken blade of Pierre's rapier glistened under the man's throat. One lifeless hand clutched at it, as though in the last moment of life he had tried to draw it forth. The face was distorted. The eyes were still open, the lips parted. Death had come with terrible suddenness. Philip bent lower and stared into the face of the dead man. Where had he seen that face before? Suddenly he remembered. He drew back, and a cold sweat seemed to break out all at once over his face and body. This man who lay with the broken blade of Pierre Couchet's rapier in his breast had come ashore from the London ship that day in company with Eileen and her father. For a space he was overwhelmed by the discovery. Everything that had happened, the scene upon the rock when he first met Jeanne, the arrival of the ship, the moment's tableau on the pier when Jeanne and Eileen stood face to face, rushed upon him now as he gazed down into the staring eyes at his feet, what did it all mean? Why had Lord Fitzhugh's name been sufficient to drag the half-breed back from the brink of unconsciousness? 
What significance was there in this strange combination of circumstances that persisted in drawing Pierre and Jeanne into the plot that threatened himself? Had there been truth, after all, in those last words that he impressed upon the fainting senses of Pierre Couchet's message to Gregson? He waited to answer none of the questions that leaped through his brain. Tomorrow someone would find Pierre, or Pierre would crawl down into Churchill, and then there would be the dead man to account for. He shuddered as he returned his revolver into his holster and braced his limbs. It was an unpleasant task, but he knew that it must be done to save Pierre. He lifted the body clear of the rocks and, bending under its weight, carried it to the edge of the cliff. Far below sounded the wash of the sea. He shoved his burden over the edge and listened. After a moment there came a dull splash. Then he hastened on as Pierre had guided him. End of chapter 9 Recording by Roger Moline